Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to All Delights, show number 81. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Everybody, welcome. How is everyone doing? Yes, show 81. Fine show. Packed show. A little bit of an extra special show today. We have the editorial coming up by my good self. And it's just remembering J.G. Ballard passed away this week. And it's just to say goodbye to him, really. Poetry comes from Mike Allen. We have Flash Fiction by Giulio Flavio Marcini. Got a fact book dropped in by the English Assassin. Comes in with a very special book there to look out for. Got some short fiction by none other than Spider Robinson. Yes. Then we have another fact article. This by Steve from the Comic Book Outsiders. Do look out for that. Main fiction comes from Mark Laidlaw. Flight Risk. Fantastic story. New titles at the end of the show. We've got a little section on new titles. And it's actually one company, and it's the collection. It's the Space Opera collection that Orion have just put out. So that's quite interesting. And if you remember last week, I mentioned the Sanatorium special offer show, which was coming up, which will give you access to all the Sanatorium shows just by donating any amount. Well, that's coming up at the end of the show. So listen out for the special offer. So that is Oral Delights for this week. I hope you think that's fine <laughs> i certainly do so please join me after this short promo hi i'm big anklevich and i'm rish outfield and that's our 080t we're your hosts for the doonstief audio fiction magazine on the doonstief we read science fiction fantasy and horror stories what did he say he says that you're a loser if you've never listened to the Dune, Steve, you don't know what you're missing. Stupid, worthless robot. Why don't we play them a sample? Yeah, 080T, can you play that story sample? Javi slid the crystal into place. His accomplice fiddled with some knobs, and the spaceship came alive with a quiet whir. Outside, the guards were scrambling, confused at the ring of rolling blue fire that built under the machine. The wooden mounts vaporized and the ground blackened. The accomplice spoke. Is it a go? Yes, Javi said. He turned on the space barrier and pulled the throttle. They shot upwards, crashing through the ceiling, leaving the guards on the ground pointing and shaking their heads. Thanks, Oedo T. After the story, there's witty banter and discussion from the hosts. What did he say this time? He says you're a loser. The best part about the discussion is that it's at the end, so it's easy just to skip it. Right. So, come check out the Doonstief Audio Fiction Magazine. Find us at www.doonstief.com. That's D-U-N-E-S-T-E-E-F. What did he say? That I'm a loser? 
No, he said that if you check out the Dune Steve, you'll be glad that you did. Huh. And he said that you're a loser. Friggin' robot. So getting into the editorial, and like I said before in the introduction, J.G. Ballard passed away this week, and it's just really to say goodbye to him, do you know what I mean? He was one of the kind of instrumental creators of this kind of movement that came around with Moorcock and everyone like that and the New Worlds, and it's funny, I didn't really connect with all of his stories, all of his books, all of the times. He's one of them writers for me, I sometimes kind of struggled with, you know, and I didn't, like, the, the latter part of his, his work, it didn't really seem to, for me, go where I wanted to go in, in writing. But certainly, the book I read called The Drowned World, well, I actually listened to it on audio, and it was just immense, to be quite honest. Please, if you can track that down, if you've got that on audio, I mean, the audio version as well, it just was a kind of stunning piece of work. But what I'd it was just his descriptions and it was just this kind of, it was so intense, the work. Do you know what I mean? You were kind of on edge, you know, for the characters, for the protagonists. And he's just describing of this kind of drowned world, you know, like London flooded and, and you know, it kind of turned into the tropics and everything like that. What a just a, a fantastic story and total one of those stories where it was just total submersion. You know, you just got so involved with it and, you know, especially for me, I didn't look up until the, fin- the book was finished. But, you know, with kind of Ballard's passing, it's, uh, there's one guy I really feel sorry for, you know what I mean? And I was, as soon as I, I, I heard it on the news and I thought, oh God, there's Ballard's gone there now. You know, I, I'm thinking of Mike Moorcock, because it's bizarre that, or in a way, Mike's lost, like, say, so many friends of late in that kind of area, do you know what I mean? He was, he sent us an email, I was trying to get some more stories off him, and he sent us an email saying, you know, he's still having trouble coming to the, you know, terms with Tom Dish's suicide. Then, just not long after that, Barrington Bailey died. Then he's one of his best friends, Jim Cawthorn, and Jim Cawthorn was one of the, the, kind of one of the artists for New Worlds, who actually lived in Gateshead, and Kieran always wanted to go and interview him, you know, for the show, and we never got around to doing that. But he just died. And this is all kind of in this year, you know what I mean? Or in this like, this like short period. And then now comes JG Ballard. And, you know, if you could pop over and watch our video, you know, he kind of mentions a main kind of fun and passing. And he was a true friend to Mike Moorcock there. So you kind of think, God, eventually all that's, you know, we're, we're all kind of getting shunted up to the kind of the, the, the firing line, you know, it'd not be long before all my friends and you know, myself as well are kind of in that line up to go, you know, to go wherever. But it's a strange one. But I'd just like to say, hearts and thoughts go out to J.J. Ballard's family and friends. You know, what a great writer. And please do check out The Drowned World. It is just evocative piece of storytelling, you know, science fiction at its grandest. I think it's time to just step and do some poetry now. Black Holes Hold Their Breath by Mike Allen Read by Kate Baker I'm sorry to disappoint science fiction fans, but if information is preserved, there is no possibility of using black holes to travel to other universes. If you jump into a black hole, your mass energy will be returned to our universe, but in a mangled form which contains the information about what you were like, but in an unrecognizable state. Stephen Hawking, 2004
Black holes hold their breath, deny the urge to exhale, as life's pull grows frail. Speak at last in death, tall tales of their creation, slow lives told in sighs. Slow gods dying lies, spewing misinformation, hiding holocaust. All the lives they've claimed, returned, recombined and maimed. All escape hopes lost. Damning stars we curse your crime robbed of our chance to slip the end of time. Thank you, Mike. Do pop over to Mike's site. I'll put a link on the front of the website. Fingers crossed for the nebulous for Mike as well. He's in there with that story, the button bin. Mike, <laughs> fingers crossed, sir, for you. So moving on to the flash fiction, and it's by Giulio Flavio Marcini. Now, Giulio, I'm, the last time I tried that, you know, it took us ages, and I'm just going off memory here if I got that name right or not. So, Giulio, I hope I have, sir. Thank you so much for this. It is narrated by Annette Bowman, and now I'll put a link on to Annette's site. Annette wants really to make her a little site, you know, like a little kind of stopping off point so you can kind of go in different directions and anything science fiction. So do pop over to Annette's site, and Annette, thank you so much for this narration. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present Different by Giulio Flavio Marcini. She stepped in the air chute and felt the familiar sense at her stomach as she began her ascent. She was not used to being so edgy. Perspiration accumulated at her brows, and she noticed her quick breathing. She tried to calm herself down and take slow, deep breaths. She was supposed to meet her husband. She lingered there, feeling her heart pound, and dried her temple with a handkerchief. He arrived in the elevator beside hers, and gaped a moment looking for her. He walked to her, and their hands searched for each other and held firm, tightly clasped. Their eyes were locked with a look of understanding and cool acceptance. She thought of her family. She was from a family of three children and had grown up in a green lawn suburb. From time to time they would all gang up inside their car and drive to nearby places, an amusement park or some tourist attraction, fond memories of fighting for space in the back of the car and loud singing. They were close and always met at their parents' house at various occasions and were the sort of siblings that would very well keep on meeting even after their parents passed away. Three years earlier, she met the man that would become her husband. Their relationship was simple. Not bad, mind you. It had great moments. It had fights. It even had a little despair. But it had much hope. He, too, wanted a family with two or three children. Only it was for the opposite reason she had. For he was an only child. They married two years ago. They both worked full-time, but did not grow apart and managed to maintain their love kindled through great admiration for one another, as well as effort. But no children came. Their attempts at bearing children had been fruitless. At first they were told that with time it would eventually take place. But time did not help. They consulted with many specialists on the matter. Every blood exam, probe, and scan had been performed, and all they showed was that they were in perfect health, and should have had no difficulty in becoming pregnant. And in this, their frustration built up. But they supported one another, and accepted it. But still, she was curious to find out why. Or so she rationalized. 
finally they found about an expert in the area who seemed to be making some progress in understanding this problem. They sought him out, and he explained to them that though he might answer their question, he would probably not be able to help them. They acceded and went on with his tests. That had been two months ago. They turned and walked side by side, headed to the doctor's office. His receptionist received them and invited them to sit in the waiting room. Her husband stroked her hair. She was distracted by this and by a shallow fountain at the corner of the room. The bluish haze that colored the walls was comforting. And so for a time that did not seem long at all, the doctor opened the door and beckoned them into his office. He pointed to some everyday jean cosmetic products. Blonde forever, or until you want it. Or magic shave. Products we take for granted. Descended initially from treatment for incurable and degenerative diseases, gene therapy proved easier and easier to be handled. Soon lotions and ointments carried viruses commandeered to make small gene changes in many things, such as skin color and hair texture. They had always been considered innocuous. He explained to them that viruses did not work in a homogenous fashion in everyone. Some effect of these viruses could be found far from eyelashes or nails, their original site of intent. Unwittingly, people were making changes in their genome, affecting their descendants. More of these changes were accumulating at such a pace that whole chromosomes started losing their original size and shape, losing compatibility. Finally, he said, What I'm trying to say is, you cannot have children with each other, for you are not altogether the same species. There you go. Julio, thank you so much, sir. Annette, thank you. Do keep them coming. And Annette's just getting the kind of grips with editing and everything like this. And <laughs> it's, a, it's a steep learning curve, Annette. So, yes, do stick at it. Very worthwhile. Don't forget, mind, if anybody else wants to narrate, well, I've got some plans for Oral Delights where I want to kind of take it bigger and better and stronger. And the idea is to get some more short stories on there in one go, you know, in the kind of, in the, the show itself. So I, what I need is kind of a nice big harem of narrators. I've got quite a few at the minute, but if you want to narrate for Starship Sova, you know, you fancy having a go, do drop us an email, starshipsover at gmail.com. You know, I'd love to hear from you, and we'll just try it out, just see if it's for you, you know. And fact articles, if you've got a fact article you're interested in sharing with the world, let me know. So talking about, you know, someone who got in touch, English assassin there, got in touch with this fantastic book review, Simon Sir. Hi Tony, the English Assassin here again, and I thought I'd let everyone know about what was for me, and probably only me, and for maybe a handful of others, a relatively semi-momentous event in science fiction. No one died, nothing like that. All that happened was for the first time since the late 1980s, a classic British science fiction novel has been republished in the month of March 2009. The novel being John Christopher's post-apocalyptic The Death of Grass. Nothing too shattering in that, except it means I don't have to spend 
thirty forty pounds on a tatty old paperback, and neither do I have to play a, a game of cat and mouse with other online bidders in order to uh, get hold of it. I speak from bitter experience here, having uh, many occasions in the past tried and failed to get my hands on a, a copy of The Death of Grass for a more reasonable price. Of course, now The Death of Grass is available for a much more affordable and justifiable sum of £8.99 in the Penguin's Modern Classics range. I can sit back, cigar in hand, congratulating myself on my obvious cunning and prudence and foresight in not giving in to the temptation of trying to gazump my virtual online competitors. Anyway, I digress. Even better news than my uh, small saving is that despite my ludicrously high expectations, which have so often in the past been my undoing, the death of grass is in every way the missing link in the British post-apocalypse genre that I'd always hoped it would be. First published in 1956, it only missed out in winning the 1950. Seven International Fantasy Award to that long-forgotten novel, Lord of the Rings, by someone or other, J.R. something. And in that same year, it was adapted to film under its American title, No Blades of Grass. It's set in the Wyndham tradition, tradition made famous with uh, his novel, by his novel Day of the Triffids. The Death of Grass depicts the collapse of British society following a plague, which is in the process wiping out all the grasses on the earth. Now, on the face of it, this might not sound too bad. Sure, the British Lawn Tennis Association might not be too happy having to postpone, presumably having to postpone Wimbledon, and shares uh, might rise in astroturf companies, but it hardly seems up there when compared with the other inventive ways that SF authors have wiped us out over the years. The killer plagues, the asteroids, the killer plants, the alien invasion, the solar radiation, the nuclear holocaust. They all seem far more dramatic than um, a humble grass-killing virus. But when you think about it, wheat, barley, oats and rye are all affected. And this is only after the virus has mutated, having previously wiped out rice crops across Asia. And as the plague spreads, Europe and the US have to start tightening their collective belts while they hope for a miracle cure. But the cure doesn't come, and a matter of months, rationing is in place. Of course, here, John Christopher doesn't miss a trick in showing us how interrelated our food chain is. Without grass crops, there's no cows, there's no sheep, therefore there's no dairy industry, just potatoes and pig farming, a diet of bangers and mash. Not so bad, maybe. Apart from the rickets, that is. The, the virus isn't giving the world the time it needs to make the switch from non-grass-based agricultural methods. And the democratic governments are all found wanting in making that decision. Instead, they pin their hopes that a cure will be found in time. But like real life, there are no miracles to be found in this novel. In Death of Grass, when society falls, it falls hard and it falls fast. The novel follows a haphazard collection of refugees fleeing the chaos of London, led by the main protagonist, John, um, an architect, in a desperate attempt to reach the safety of his brother's farm in a sheltered 
and a highly defendable valley somewhere in the north. The novel immediately distinguishes itself from Wyndham's cosier day at the Triffids. Here, the new semi-fascist emergency government gives orders to implement a nuclear strike on a lockdown London in a futile attempt to cull Britain's population to a more sustainable post-grass level. Tipped off by his cynical friend Roger, a civil servant, of the impending nuclear disaster. John and his wife Anne, both bourgeois liberals, find their values immediately challenged as they are forced to decide who to leave and who to take. Here the death of grass pulls no punches and assumes that even before the full extent of the situation is understood by the population, that law and order will soon break down. En route to his uh, brother's sanctuary, John and company are subject to assault, rape, banditry, and they themselves soon find their bourgeois morality irrelevant to their new world and quite disposable. To survive the journey, John finds himself having to make a deal with the devil, the devil in this case being a gun shop owner and crack marksman, who has immediately uh, taken advantage of the new situation by promptly executing his unfaithful wife, then replacing her with uh, an underage sex slave, that is, after killing her parents. But John realises the marksman, Piri, is vital to the group's chances of survival, and John accepts his behaviour in the short term. He himself considers killing him later, once his usefulness is over. Indeed, it's interesting that the most cynical character at the start of the book, Roger the civil servant, finds himself unable to adapt to the new amorality of the violent, grassless era. It isn't till the chips are down that we find out what stuff we're really made of. With grim inevitability, the novel grinds towards the sanctuary of the Brothers Valley in the north, leading to a highly satisfying allegorical confrontation between the brothers and the rival groups. Unlike most post-apocalyptic novels where the danger remains something outside society, usually in the form of a monster or improbable scientific catastrophe, while the norms and values of the protagonist usually remain fairly unchanged, the death of grass shows that the threat to us comes from the very interdependence of modern infrastructure and society's dependence upon these infrastructures, a dependence surely more complex and fragile today than it ever was in 1956 when the novel was written, as we today we find ourselves even further removed from the natural world. The inner apocalypse of the death of grass really paves the way for so much that came later in the new wave of British science fiction. Being an obvious spiritual predecessor to J.G. Ballard's Drowned World, and Brian Aldiss's grey beard. But Death of Grass is a little less concerned with entropy and metaphysics than the new wave. It's a far more robust read. The ecology and sustainability issues were later echoed in a little bit more detail in the original 1975 TV series Survivors. I know it's a cliche, but I say it anyway. The Death of Grass is probably more relevant today than it ever was. While probably better known in the UK for his children novels The Tripods and the TV series which it spawned, John Christopher's Death of Grass deserves to be better known and more widely read than it is. 
And if you do want to read it, now is the best time to do so, or at least the best time in the last 20-odd years, costing you less today than it would have done only a few months ago. Anyway, as I said, The Death of Grass, there it is, is available from Penguin Modern Classics at £8.99, and for $19 Canadian dollars. For your convenience, I'll be putting the notes I made for this little section of the show on my blog, which can be found at the English Assassin, that's all one word, dot wordpress, again, all one word, dot com, where I've also put my notes for the past features that I've done for the good ship Starship Sofa. I'll also stick up there any other links and bits and bobs I might find regarding this uh, novel and anything else. That's all from me, Simon Ingrill, the English Assassin. See you next time. Bye. Now, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, English Assassin website. So please pop over there and have a look. There's more fact articles on, you know, and there's more bits from this review that he's actually got on the site as well. So pop over to the English Assassin's website and say hello and check out his work there. Now, this is one of the ways where I want to kind of, you know, and it won't be every week and it won't be all the time, but if I get enough narrators on board, do you know what I mean? It's certainly a possibility. This is another short story I'm going to play today, and this one's actually narrated by Spider Robinson, written by Spider Robinson, and Spider Robinson's voice. <laughs> you know, we're talking comfort zone here, just fantastic. And I emailed Spider, I think it was to do with the, the certificates for the the sofa notes, the awards, and he actually came back and said he was writing this story, and I can't even mention it just yet in case it hasn't even came off or things aren't going right, but what the idea he was writing, he was writing it with another writer. What an idea, and what a little niche story this is going to be, and this is, I'm dying for this book to come out, so if I hear any more about, I'll certainly let you know. But until then, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present, not fade away. By Spider Robinson. I became aware of him five parsecs away. He rode a nickel-iron asteroid of a hundred metric tons as if it were an unruly steed, and he broke off chunks of it and hurled them at the stars, and he howled. I manifested at the outer periphery of his system and waited to be noticed. I'm sure he had been aware of me long before I detected him, but he affected not to see me for several days until my light reached him. I studied him while I waited. There was something distinctly odd about his morphology. After a while I recognized it. He was wearing the prototype, the body our ancestors wore. I looked closer and realized that it was the only body he had ever worn. Oh, it had been balanced and space-proofed and the skull-shielded, of course, but he looked as if when balancing was discovered he had been just barely young enough for the process to take. He must have been one of the oldest of the eldest. But why keep that ridiculous body configuration? It was hopelessly inefficient, suited only to existence on the surface of planets, and rather poorly to that. For a normal environment, everything about it was wrong. I saw that he had had the original sensory equipment improved for space conditions, but it was still limited and poorly placed. Everything about the body was laid out bilaterally and unidirectionally, creating a blind side. The engineering was all wrong, the forelimbs all severely limited in mobility. Many of the joints were essentially one-directional, simple hinges. Stranger still, the body was grotesquely, comically over-muscled. Whenever his back happened to be turned to his star, 
the forty-kilo bits of rock he hurled achieved system escape velocity. Yet he was able to keep that asteroid clamped between his great thighs. What individual ever, much less routinely, needs that much strength in free space? Oddest of all, of course, his mind was sealed. Apparently, totally, I could get no reading at all from him, and I am a very good reader. He must have been completely unplugged from the bonding, and in all my three thousand years I have met only four such. He must have been as lonely as any of our ancestors ever was. Yet he knew that the bonding exists, and refused it. A number of objects were tethered or strapped to his body, all worn but showing signs of superb maintenance. It took me several days to identify them all positively as utensils, several more to realize that each was a weapon. It takes time for things to percolate down out of the race memory, and the oldest things take the most time. By then he was ready to notice me. He focused one of his howls and directed it to me. He carefully ignored all the part of me that is bonded, addressing only my individual ego, with great force. Go away! Why? I asked reasonably. Go away at once, or I will end you. I radiated startled interest. Really? Why would you do that? Oh, there was a silence of some hours. I will go away. I said at last, if you will tell me why you want me to do so. His volume was lower. Do you know who I am? I laughed. How could I know? Your mind is sealed. I am the last warrior. Warrior, wait now. Warrior must be an old word. Warrior, oh, oh, you kill and destroy, deliberately. How odd! Are you going to destroy me? I may, he said darkly. I see. How might I dissuade you? I do not believe I am old enough to die competently yet, and I have at least one major obligation outstanding. Do you lack the courage to flee, or the wit? I shall attempt to flee if I find it necessary, but I would not expect to succeed. Ah, you fear me. Fear? No, I recognize the menace you represent. I repeat, how might I dissuade you from ending me? Is there something I can offer you? Access to the bonding of minds, perhaps? This reply was instant. If I suspect you of planning to initiate the bonding process with me, I will make your death a thing of unending and unspeakable agony. I projected startlement, then masked it. What can I do for you then? He laughed. <laughs> That's easy. Find me a fair fight. Find me an enemy. If he or she or it is as strong as me, I will let you go unharmed. If stronger, I will give you all I own and consecrate my death to you. I am not sure I understand. I am the last warrior. Yes. When I chose my profession, warriors were common and commonly admired. We killed or destroyed not for personal gain, but to protect a group of non-warriors or to protect an idea or an ideal. I emanated confusion. Against what? His answer was days in coming. Other warriors. How did the cycle get started? Primitive men were all warriors. Really. Then there came a time when the average man had to be forced to kill or destroy. One day he could no longer be forced. A balanced human in free space cannot be coerced, only slain. 
Can you visualize circumstances which would force you to kill? Only with the greatest difficulty, I said. But you enjoy it? You would find pleasure or value in killing me? A week passed. At last he smote his asteroid with his fist, sharply enough to cause rock to fly from its other side. No. I lied. I will not kill you. What good is a fight you can't lose? Why did you... lie? In order to frighten you. You failed. Yes, I know. Why did you wish to frighten me? To compel you to my will. Hmm. I believe I see. Then you do wish to locate an enemy. I am baffled. I should have thought a warrior's prime goal to be the elimination of all other warriors. No. A warrior's prime goal is to overcome other warriors. I am the greatest warrior our race has ever raised up. I have not worked in over five thousand years. There is no one to overcome. Oh. Do you know what the R-brain is? Wait, wait, wait. It's coming. Oh, I know what the R-brain was, the primitive reptile brain from which the human brain evolved. And do you know that for a considerable time early humans, true humans, possessed beneath their sentient brains a vestigial but powerful R-complex called the subconscious mind? Of course, the first great antinomy. I have an R-complex. I registered shock. You cannot possibly be old enough. I could sense his bitter grin before the sight of it crawled to me at light speed. Do you notice anything interesting about this particular star system? I glanced around. Barring your presence in it, no. Consider that planet there. The third. At first glance it was an utterly ordinary planet, like a myriad of others in this out-of-the-way sector. It was wet, and therefore alive, and even showed signs that it had evolved intelligent life at least once, but of course that was, by definition, long gone. None of its remaining life-forms seemed anywhere near bright enough to leave it behind and enter the world yet. Its physical and ballistic properties appeared unremarkable. But after only a few days of contemplation, I cried out in surprise. Why, its period of rotation is almost precisely one standard day, and its period of revolution seems to approximate a standard year, and its surface acceleration is a standard G. Do you mean to tell me that planet is, uh, is, uh, uh... Dirt, he agreed, and yonder star is Sol. And you imply that... Yes, I was born here, on that planet, in fact, at a time when all the humans in the universe lived within the confines of this system, and used less than half the planets at that. <sighs> Do you still wonder that I shun your bonding? No. To you, with a reptile brainstem, it must be the ultimate obscenity. Defenselessness, yes. A thing which can be neither dominated nor compelled, and which itself will not dominate or compel. You must hate us. I. You could be healed. The reptile part of your brain could— I could be gilded, too, and why not, since none will breed with me? Yet I choose to retain my gonads, and my R-complex. Call it habit. I see. I paused and thought. What prevents you from physically attacking the bond? I believe that at this point in history you could harm it greatly, perhaps even destroy it. I repeat, what good is a fight you can't lose? Oh. In the old days, there was glory.
There was a galaxy to be tamed, empires to be carved out of the sky, mighty enemies to challenge. More than once I pulverized a star. With four allies I battled the ten of Algol, and after two centuries broke them. Then were other sentient races found in the inner neighboring arm of the galaxy, and I learned the ways of fighting them. He paused. I was honored in those days. I was one of mankind's saviors. A terrible chuckle. Do you know anything sorrier than an unemployed savior? And your fellows? One day it was all changed. The brain had evolved. Man's enemies were broken or co-opted. It became clear that competition for unlimited wealth is insane. Peace broke out. The cursed bonding began. At first we fought it as a plague swallowing our charges, but ere long we came to see that it was what they had freely chosen. Finally there came a day when we had only ourselves to fight. And we fought. Whole systems were laid to waste. Alliances were made and betrayed. Truly frightening energies were released. The rest of mankind withdrew from us and forgot us. I can see how this would be. Man had no need of us. Man was in harmony with himself and his neighbors, and it was now plain that in all the galaxy there were no threatening races, extant or imminent. For a long time we had hoped that there might lie enemies beyond this galaxy, that we might yet be needed, and so we fought mock combats, preserving ourselves for our race. We dreamed of once again battling to save our species from harm. We dreamed of vindication. A long pause. Then we heard of contact with bondings of sentient beings from neighboring galaxies. The unification began. In rage and despair we fell upon each other, and there was a mighty slaughter. There was one last false alarm of hope when the malign bonding of the Crab Nebula was found. His voice began to tremble with rage. We waited for your summons, and you... you... Suddenly he screamed, You cured the bastards! Listen to me, I said. A neuron is a wonderful thing. But when a billion neurons agree to work together, they become a thing a billion times more wonderful. A brain, a mind. There are as many stars in this galaxy as there are neurons in a single human mind. More than coincidence. This galaxy has become a single mind. The bonding. There are as many galaxies in this universe as there are stars in the average galaxy. Each has or is developing its own bonding. Each of these is to be a neuron in the cosmic mind. One day unification will be complete and the universe will be intelligent. You can be part of that mind and share in it. No, he said emphatically. If I am part of the cosmic mind, then I am part of its primitive subconscious mind. The subconscious is useful only for preservation from outside threat. As your brain evolved beyond your ancestor's subconscious mind, your universal mind has evolved beyond me. There is nothing in the planum that you need fear. He leaned forward in sudden pain, embraced his asteroid with his arms as well as his legs. I began moving closer to him, not so rapidly as to alarm him if he should look up, but not slowly. When we understood this, he said, we warriors fell upon each other anew. Four centuries ago, Jarl and I allied to defeat the one in red. That left only each other. We made it last as long as we could. Perhaps it was the greatest battle ever fought. Jarl was very, very good. That was why I saved him for last. 
and you overcame him? Since then I have been alone. He lifted his head quickly and roared at the universe, Gerald, you son of a bitch, why didn't you kill me? He put his face again to the rock. I could not tell if he had seen me approaching. And in all the years since you have had no opponent. I tried cloning myself once. Useless. No clone can have my experience and training. The environment which produced me no longer exists. What good is a fight you cannot lose? I was coming ever closer. Why do you not suicide? What good is a fight you cannot lose? I was near now. Then all these years you have prayed for an enemy. I... His voice was despairing. Your prayer is answered. He stiffened. His head came up and he saw me. I represent the bonding of the crab, I said then. The cure was imperfect, and I did direct at him a laser. I was near, but he was quick, and his mirror shield deflected my bolt even before he could have had time to absorb my words. I followed the laser with other energies, and he dodged, deflected, or neutralized them as fast as they could be mounted. There was an instant's pause then, and I saw a grin begin slowly and spread across his face. Carnivore's warning. He flung his own weapons into space. I am delivered, he cried. And then he shifted his mass, throwing his planetoid into a spin. When it lay between us, I thought he had struck it with both feet, for suddenly it was rushing toward me. Of course I have avoided it easily, but as it passed he darted around from behind it where he had been hidden and grappled with me physically. He hurled the rock not with his feet, but with a reaction drive. Then did I understand why he kept such an ancient body form, for it was admirably suited to single combat. I had more limbs, but weaker, and one by one my own weapons were torn from me and hurled into the void. Meanwhile, mental energies surged against each other from both sides, and space began to writhe around us. Mentally I was stronger than he, for he had been long alone, and mental muscles can be exercised only on another mind. But his physical power was awesome, and his ferocity a thing incomprehensible to me. And now I see the end coming. Soon his terrible hands will reach my brain case and rip it asunder. When this occurs, my body will explode with great force, and we shall both die. He knows this, and in this instant of time before the end, I know what he is doing beneath this shield where I cannot probe. He is composing his last message for transmission to you, his people, his bonding. He is warning you of mortal danger. He is telling you where to find his hidden DNA samples, where to find the records he has made of everything he knows about combat, how to train his clones to be almost as good as he is, and he is feeling the satisfaction of vindication. I could have told you, he is saying, ye who knew not my worth, who had forgotten me, yet will I save you. This is my own last message to you, to the same people, to the same bonding. It worked. He believes me. I have accomplished what you asked of me. He has the hero's death he craved. We will die together, he and I. And that is meet and proper, for I am the last healer in the cosmos. And now I, too, am unemployed. That story appears in the collection User-Friendly from Bain Books and is copyright 1998 by Spider Robinson, all rights reserved. There you go. Do pop over to Spider Robinson's site. Do say hello from the Starship Sober. That would be that would mean a lot to me if you just went over there and just said hello and thank you. You know, We've got some more work by Spider Robinson coming soon. 
Next up, we have Steve from the Comic Book Outsiders talking about Fiery Agent. Steve, sir. Hello, my name's Steve from the Comic Book Outsiders podcast, and today I'm here to talk to you about Fear Agent from Dark Horse Comics. When I think about all the classic sci-fi action heroes and those who've had comics, TV shows, and cartoons made about their adventures, I think of Flash Gordon, both the Buster Crab and the Sam Jones versions, Buck Rogers, and Dan Dare. All of these heroes are outstanding men who fought the good fight. They rarely, if ever, swore, and in general, they were decent and honest men. Well, now it's time to add another name to the roster, Heath Houston. Heath is a sci-fi action hero and adventurer, but he's unlike those previously mentioned because he has almost nothing in common with them. He drinks, swears, cheats, lies, steals, and he kills aliens. Heath is an alcoholic Texan and the last fear agent, an honorary title given to a group of humans who fought in a hopeless fight to save Earth. On a normal day, a race of aliens invade Earth and decimate the entire planet. Any resistance seems to have failed, and those who survive the initial attack huddle together in the ruins of their world. Determined to get payback for the millions of humans slaughtered, Heath and a group of resistant fighters create the fear agents, people who will teach the alien invaders the true meaning of the word fear. With help from alien sympathizers, the fear agents gain access to advanced technology which allows them to hold the line. However, in doing so, some terrible crimes are committed, and the worth truth of all is discovered that invasion wasn't an invasion at all. Earth just happened to be in the way between two warring alien civilizations. In a desperate attempt to save his world, with his friends dying all around him, Heath does something terrible. In the process, a horrendous number of aliens die, and Heath is labelled as a war criminal by the aliens. With Earth all but a shell, and nowhere else to go, Heath blasts off into space in search of adventure. Heath's story continues years after the invasion, with our hero drifting from world to world, getting tangled up in all manner of adventures involving primitive alien races, human survivors, space pirates, the occasional fear agent, time travellers, alien spiders, weird western worlds, seemingly omnipotent alien beings, and of course, all manner of alcohol to numb the pain. Throughout the series we find out more about Heath and his past, and why he went from being a happy married man to being alone in space, with only his ship's computer as his friend. Misery loves company, and even when he does well and wins, there's never really a happy ever after ending for Heath. He just continues. On to the next adventure, the next drunken mishap, the next time-travelling escapade. There are elements of this comic that remind me of Red Dwarf, specifically the middle series where they were trapped in Starbug, roamed the galaxy in search of Earth and Red Dwarf. But with Fear Agent, Earth isn't three million years away. It's right there, and Heath can go back to it if he wants. It's just, there's nothing much to go back for, really. It's a graveyard to an all but extinct race. I'm probably making this comic sound very depressing now, but it really isn't. It's horrific at times, with people and aliens dying and being torn into pieces or blown up. And the artwork by Tony Moore is always graphic and very colourful, which somehow makes it cheery. There are definitely melancholy moments for Heath when he contemplates his life and the decisions he's made. But then five minutes later, he's usually up to his elbows in alien parasites. So it's all good. This might sound like a strange comparison, given everything that I've said, but Fear Agent sometimes reminds me of a darker version of Star Wars. Mostly it's because humans are just one tiny part of the tapestry of space. We're not the dominant species who rules over everything. We're just another pink, squishy flesh sack. 
amidst bug-eyed aliens, cyborgs, and weird jelly-brained beings that are hard to describe. Star Wars A New Hope gave us a look at the seedier side of space on Moss Eisley and the Cantina, and if the film had continued in that vein, then it would be in the same ballpark as Fear Agent. Rick Remender, the writer of Fear Agent, is someone who likes to flex his muscles when writing. He never seems to do the same thing twice, and the same can be said about the different story arcs in Fear Agent. Each trade paperback is about five issues long, and in it you'll get a fast-paced story with some great plot twists that you'll never see coming. He also never plays it safe either. Other writers would take their stories to the edge of the cliff, and then somehow find a convenient way to save a favourite character. It might make for a happy ending, and it makes you feel good, but there's something very dishonest about that kind of writing. Keeping a character around because you like them, not because they deserve to live, is cheating the audience. We've seen it countless times on TV and in films, and Hollywood is notorious for its saccharine endings. You won't find that here. In Fear Agent, much like in the original Star Wars where Han shot first, Heath is there, pulling the trigger and spitting on the corpse of his enemy because they deserved it. Fear Agent is a fun, unflinching and unapologetic sci-fi adventure series where the main character is far from perfect. Despite all his flaws and the terrible things he's done, there's something endearing about Heath. You want him to succeed. You want him to go back in time and somehow find a way to stop the alien invasion that shattered his world and his life. You're rooting for him because he's an everyman, just an ordinary Joe caught up in unimaginable events that drove him to drink and despair. So if you want a sci-fi comic where the focus is on fast-paced action and horror, one that has real balls and real heart, then look no further than Fear Agent from Dark Horse Comics. I'm Steve from Combook Outsiders, and thanks for listening. Our podcast is focused on bringing our listeners hidden gems from the world of independent comics, movies, and TV. Mainstream comics, like TV and movies, receive a lot of media attention, but there is a wealth of fantastic material out there in every single genre that needs to be talked about. On our podcast, my co-host Scott and I regularly interview creators, discuss topics of interest, reveal guilty pleasures in the genre confessional, and I regularly pitch comics to Scott to try to get him interested in something new. We've also recently started a book club where we challenge ourselves and our listeners to try something outside their comfort zones, be it modern or a classic novel. Our most recent book club selection is the classic Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, and in a future episode we'll discuss it on the show with comments and audio feedback from listeners. If you'd like to know more about comics and are interested in getting into the medium but don't know where to start, or maybe you're tired of the convoluted mainstream comics and want to know what else is out there, then check out our website at comicbookoutsiders.com or you can join in the discussion at the forums, which is at thecomicforums.com. There you go. Look out for more from the Comic Book Outsiders on a Starship sofa near you. Links to their website, front of the page. So now we come on to the main fiction of the day, Flight Risk by Mark Laidlaw. Mark Laidlaw is the author of six novels of science fiction, fantasy, suspense and horror. Over the last 30 years he has published dozens of short stories in numerous magazines and anthologies. Since 1997 he has been a member of Valve Software, where he co-created and continues as lead writer for the hit video game franchise Half-Life and its sequels. Today's narration comes from the two great lads over at Dune Steve podcast Big and Rish. 
These two guys met in college where they were both participating in the same student film. They discovered they both had a love for writing and reading speculative fiction. Years later, they had been become addicted to story podcasts and they decided to start one of their own. The June Steve audio fiction magazine reads sci-fi horror fantasy stories. And that was the promo that was played earlier this show. So just a big thank you to Big and Rish for this narration, a fine narration. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents Flight Risk by Mark Laidlaw. They brought Foster to the boy by a route of back alleys and parking garages, shifting him from car to car several times until eventually, although he'd thought he knew the city very well, he found himself uncertain of his whereabouts. They were near the airport, he knew that much. Condemned buildings, empty shops, and the rumbling pall of jet trails over everything. With a massive extension of the runways planned, this part of the city had known it was doomed. The exodus occurred before delays set in. A perfect place to hide the boy without seeming to hide him. The final car, a black sedan with dented doors and fenders thinned by rust, drew to a stop at the rear of a building that had too many windows to be a warehouse, too few to be a residence. The man riding shotgun stepped out and opened the door. Foster slid from his seat and back, clutching his worn black bag to his gut. Along the alley, tips of garbage poked through humps of snow. There was just enough warmth in the air to carry a threat of the sourness and rot waiting beneath the ice. A black wrought-iron gate swung open in the rear of the building, and a third man, large and heavy-browed, appeared there, beckoning. Foster recognized features of gigantism, but felt no thrill at the fact that he was seeing his first giant. As Foster passed inside, the door clanged shut, cutting the rumble of a jet engine to something felt rather than heard. Foster saw a dim hall with access to a slightly brighter lobby just ahead. The giant held back the accordioned bars of an elevator cage. Foster stepped in and waited for the giant to crowd in beside him. I'll meet you up there, the giant said, his voice thick with menace. Don't get off until I let you out. No, said Foster. Of course not. The giant pressed a button and retreated, letting the doors clang shut. The elevator jerked and began a scraping ascent. If the illuminated numbers above the door were to be believed, the elevator was skipping floors. More likely, the lights were burned out. When the car finally ground to a halt, Foster knew only that he was somewhere above the seventh floor. He waited what seemed a full minute before he heard clanging, and then the giant appeared, hauling open the door and peering in at him. Out of breath and sweating profusely, he made scooping motions with his hands. Yes, yes, Foster said, following him out and down the hall. The giant stopped at a door with 909 painted on a frosted glass pane. He dug into his pocket until he found a ring with two keys on it. In the giant's hand, they looked like keys to a child's diary— or a toy padlock. He unlocked the door and pushed it open, making it clear to Foster that he should go in first. Foster heard a hum of voices mixed with the rumble of another jet passing above. They stepped into what had been the waiting room of an office, more recently being used as a residence. The domestic touches were few, a small refrigerator, a microwave oven, a card table, and several folding chairs. An old office desk butted up against a sofa bed, Pizza boxes, cereal cartons, dozens of paper coffee cups. A television with poor reception, volume almost inaudible. The source of the muted voices, probably. There was another door on the far side of the room, frosted glass pane in its upper half. 
It was ajar, and through the gap he saw a mattress laid flat on the floor. On it lay small thin legs in parachute pants, bony feet in frayed socks. The giant saw him looking, gave a shrug in that direction. Go ahead, look him over. The boy glanced up as Foster entered, wary and unsurprised, as if he had already seen many strangers come and go, Foster just another. A movement in the corner startled Foster. A second man stood up, tall and thin, so pale his face might have been a streak of light cast by headlights, sliding along the wall. Thank Christ, the man said. I can get the hell out of here. He's not your replacement, Gaunt, said the giant, coming in behind Foster. This is the doctor. Doctor? So when do I get a break? When this is all over. When? Gaunt cut himself short, glaring at Foster. What does he know? I don't know or care about your business, Foster said. I'm here for the boy. The pale man laughed. You're not the only one. Wish the others were as prompt, though. Shut up, said the giant. You need to learn patience. Hey, that's the doctor's department. Go ahead with him, Doc. I think he needs a good worming myself. Where he comes from, they've got all kinds of crud. Little brat doesn't know how good he's got it here. No appreciation. All the toys we brought him, he just sits there. Please, Foster said. All right, I'm going out for some swill, since the doctor's here. If that's okay with you. Be quick, the giant said. The two men stepped out into the other room, leaving Foster and the boy all the privacy they were likely to have. The lock had been removed from the inner door. Foster knelt down next to the mattress. The boy watched him carefully. I am a doctor, Foster said. Do you know that word? You speak English? The boy just stared. His hair was as much gray as brown, like the fur of a mangy wolf Foster had seen in the zoo. His eyes were almost as feral and far more aware of being caged. Foster tried to smile, but felt it might be misinterpreted. A smile could just as easily have foreshadowed cruelties in the boy's recent past. Do, do you know if he's had any inoculations? He called back into the other room. What? The giant shadow swam up beyond the frosted glass. You mean like polio shots? The usual vaccines. Measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus. Kid stuff. They found him in an orphanage. There must have been a medical staff. The place was a hundred years old. Rotting wood. A lot of kids were sick from the same thing. But it was nothing you could catch. That plant in Belarus or wherever. The one where they had the leak. Hell, Foster said, leaning closer to the boy. If that's it, if he's that sick. No one's expecting any miracles out of you. We just want to make sure he's strong enough to make it until we've unloaded him. So you check him out. If he'll let me. He won't give you any trouble. Never has. Foster reached for the boy's wrist, took his pulse. From his bag, he took the stethoscope and listened to the boy's chest through a thin sweater. The boy's breath was warm and smelled of sugar and milk and something else, a smell remembered from youth, working on old radios and television sets. It was like the smell of electrical discharge, yet not quite ozone, and it was stronger closer to the boy. He leaned in, nostrils flaring, and the boy reared back abruptly. Sorry, Foster said. Didn't mean to... Well... The giant had come up quietly behind him. He's well enough, but he could use some fresh air, some exercise. It's not healthy for a child to be shut up in a place like this. 
It's out of the question. He has toys if he'd play with them. Foster hadn't noticed the box full of jumbled plastic pieces pushed into one corner of the room. Decks of cards, sponge rubber balls. No cars or planes or anything that would make noise. Nothing such a boy would be likely to have any interest in playing with. Foster rose and walked to the window for a look at the icy day. He poked a few fingers through the dusty blinds. Air, he whispered. The window ledge was brick, crusted with grime, mortar that had welled up like gray dough. Pigeons milled somewhere nearby. He could hear them cooing. There was a very small playground across the street, between old apartment buildings, a few bare trees stretching up from muddy snow around climbing equipment the color of rust. Even looking at the iron bars put the tang of cold metal in his mouth. Down there, he said, there's a playground. It's totally deserted. How do you think it would look, this boy with the two of us? I'll take it myself. There's nothing suspicious in that. He's what? Not even school age. No one will question. It was impossible to tell what the giant was thinking. His face gave no clue whether he was considering the situation or had closed himself off to any possibility of compromise. I'll take care of him, Foster said. You can watch from up here and the other, your friend. Eh? Gaunt. He can watch from somewhere closer in case you're afraid the boy's a flight risk. The giant made a dismissive gesture. He has nowhere to run. Foster glanced over at the boy who watched them intently, but seemed unable to decode their conversation. He speaks no English? None. That's another problem. How will you make him obey you? How do you? The giant didn't answer. There was no need. He was an irresistible force, albeit not as malevolent as he seemed, because now he shrugged and opened his hands, palms upward. All right, but I'll stay with you. Fine. We'll be his uncles, if anyone asks. Yes, good, Foster said. You have some warm clothes for him? The giant slipped away and returned with a heavy coat, dark and thick, brand new. The boy was worth that much investment to someone. Don't want him catching cold, the giant said with a shrug and thrust it at the boy. Come on, he said. We're going out. The doctor thinks you need to play. His child, Foster repeated. Of course he needs to play. In the deserted hall, they kept the boy between them. His small face was hidden in the folds of the thick hood. Foster started toward the elevator, but the giant shook his head, wagged a finger. Not that way. You think I might run? With this boy, I take no chances. The stairwell was not much larger than the elevator car. The boy went first, down to a lobby of cracked marble that reeked of stale cigarette smoke. The giant opened the front door and looked both ways, then waved them through. There were few cars in sight. He motioned at the empty playground. Go ahead. I'll wait in here. I'd rather not be seen if I can help it. Come whenever you like, said Foster. It will do him good, I'm sure of it. Go. Foster put his hand out and was both surprised and gratified when the boy took it without hesitation. They needn't run. There was no traffic, but Foster felt like running all the same. On the far sidewalk, he stopped with a hand on the low gate that opened into the park. He grinned down at the boy and was rewarded with a small smile. A hint of color was coming back to his cheeks. Foster truly saw his eyes for the first time, and they were blue. Blue as the sky that hid somewhere beyond clouds, gray as the underside of a trash can lid. Go, Foster said, swinging open the gate. Go play.
You know play? You know fun? He clapped his hands and gestured at the swings, a roundabout, a teeter-totter. No wonder no one played here. The playground was an anachronism, full of archaic devices considered unacceptably dangerous by insurance brokers. The toys of his childhood, and that of his own children. Fearful mothers and city councilmen had conspired to tear these places down. The boy looked at him in disbelief, like a wild creature that has been caged and finds itself suddenly free. He stood staring up at Foster, then looked back at the ground-floor facade of the office building. The giant had drawn back inside. The boy spun around and ran toward a towering slide of buckled metal, undoubtedly a dangerous, rickety, tetanus-bearing thing. It took Foster a moment to realize the sharp sound he'd heard as the boy took off was a laugh. The boy hurtled down the slide, sweeping snow off as he went. From there, leaping across the puddle of slush at the bottom, he rushed toward the swing set and threw himself into the frayed rubber seat, the swing chains grating as he began to push and pull himself into widening arcs. On the highest arc, Foster feared for a moment that the boy was about to hurl himself off into the sky, his face and chest and legs, every part of him strained upward, where the sun seemed to promise it would soon tear away the clouds. It was such a visceral certainty that he startled himself by taking a step toward the swing, as if to catch the boy. Then down he came, slowing, slowing, slipping off. The boy rushed to the next amusement, the roundabout. He pushed it round and round and leapt on, then off, pushed it again and again until Foster grew dizzy from watching. Methodically, the child extracted every bit of amusement from each toy. After a while, Foster looked for somewhere to sit. The snow had begun to melt, and the benches were dripping. Mounds of brown sand revealed themselves through mounds of snow. He began to sweat inside his jacket and loosened several buttons. The monkey bars clanged with a hollow sound as the boy climbed to the top. Foster had to suppress an urge he had not felt in many years, the urge to call out a warning. As a father, he had developed the less instinctive response, let the boy be. This was the best Foster felt he could offer the orphan child, the freedom to reach to the sky, proclaiming himself master of this small height, at least for this moment. Let the boy have it. It was little enough. Across the street, the pale man was just returning from his errand with two paper cups. At that moment, the sun burned a hole through the clouds and set the street gleaming. Foster watched the men talking to each other in the doorway of the building, the giant taking one of the cups, then gesturing across to the playground. Gaunt's confusion turned to anger. He came striding across the street while the giant snarled something behind him. Foster put up a hand as if to say there was nothing to be concerned about, but at that moment he heard fluttering and felt a vast shadow spread over him from behind. He turned in surprise and growing astonishment as the other men began to shout. Foster saw that the giant, as he came, had reached into his jacket and drawn a gun, but for Foster that scarcely registered. The electric smell which he had whiffed earlier was a strong presence now, but that was the least of it. The boy still stood at the apex of the monkey bars with his hands outstretched. But now he was more clearly signaling, summoning something, making a gesture of desperate pleading and abandon, as if he were clawing at the sky, as if he were pulling it down to him, as if it were a curtain he would tear into rags. It was a child's gesture, grasping and selfish and uninhibited, completely unaware of its strength. And in response came birds, pigeons, muted grays and browns and patched white, spiraling from their roosts on the surrounding buildings. They circled and swept in, drawn to the boy. As Foster stared, something hit him hard from behind. 
The giant shoved him aside. Gaunt leapt, snarling at the bars, trying to clamber toward the gathering cloud of wings. The bars were icy and slick. Gaunt immediately lost his grip and went down hard, banging his jaw. With a grunt, he collapsed into slush. The giant began waving his hands in the air, heedless of the gun. No, Foster said. Put that away. And lower. You want someone to see? As if anyone would notice a mere gun. The boy was barely visible now at the center of the birds. How quickly they had gathered. He was lost in there, all but hidden. However, in glimpses, Foster saw his face, peaceful and beaming, eyes closed, grinning. Then the wings closed in again. Get down from there, the giant shouted, and he pointed the gun into the mass of wings. Foster had the delirious impression that the whole swarm was shifting, pulling away from the bars. Impossible, but... Please, Foster said. Let me... The gun went off. The sound was lost in another, louder sound that tore the atmosphere apart like a sonic boom, accompanied by a flash like that of lightning. The air seemed to crack and split, like a thin sheet of quartz shattering under pressure, firing sparks as it shattered. Then the light failed, and the sun was swallowed up in clouds again, and the sound was but an echo. Whether it was the gunshot or the other shock that did it, the birds scattered, exploding from the scene as if flung in every direction. For a moment, Foster saw the boy hanging in midair, several feet above the monkey bars. Then he fell. His knees struck the bars with a bang. He went through them like a rag doll, striking his head once as he went. He hit the ground just as Gaunt was rising to his feet with a hand cradling his jaw. The ozone smell mixed with the dusty miasma of feathers. Foster rushed for the boy, pushing himself through the bars of the cage, lifting him from the snow. He moaned in Foster's arms, beginning to shiver, soaking wet. The giant put out his arms, and Foster carefully fed the boy to him through the bars. The gun was hidden again. He needs to get to a hospital, Foster said. No way, said Gaunt. They ran across the street, Foster struggling to keep up. He might be concussed. It's extreme neglect not to... Your fault, doctor, said the giant bitterly. If anything happens to him, he needs immediate care. No hospital. The lobby door slammed shut behind them. This time the giant crowded into the little elevator with the boy, leaving Foster and Gaunt to climb the stairs. Because of me, Foster thought, not for the last time. As they climbed, Gaunt stopped once to hold a rail and catch his breath. His teeth were chattering. Foster realized the other man was terrified. He struggled to regain control of himself, then grew rigid as he saw Foster staring at him. What are you looking at? Nothing. I'm sorry. You should be. It struck him again. Because of me. The boy had a broken leg. That was the only certainty. The giant made several calls, and supplies arrived soon after. Then Foster set the leg himself. If there were other, more serious injuries, hidden ones, he had to content himself with patching the ones he could see. He worried about the possibility of concussion, other complications, but there was nothing else he could do about them. The mark on the boy's brow went from bluish-black to yellow over several days, as the weather warmed and the snow receded and the streets began to stink. Foster spied the coming of spring from between the blinds when he wasn't watching the boy. Gaunt and the giant took turns prowling the outer room. They shared the couch with Foster. They would not let him leave. At this point, it was out of the question. He was glad, in a way, because he would have worried to leave the boy in their care. The blue eyes watched him come and go as he puttered about the room and sorted through the contents of his black bag. The boy lay on the mattress, mostly unmoving, and said nothing, only watched him or the window. 
The TV muttered at the edge of perception, but he showed no interest in that. Unusual child. He kept gazing toward the sky, his attention growing always especially rapt when the pigeons began to stir somewhere above, and when the shadows of winged things went flickering across the blinds. When Foster smelled the ozone whiff from time to time, he worried, remembering the cyclone of wings. At one such moment, the giant came storming into the room, scouring the corners with his eyes, as if searching for some traitor or enemy in hiding. His nostrils flared. He strode to the window and drew up the blinds, and there, startling Foster, was something to feed their apprehension. The crumbling brick ledge was lined with pigeons. Several dozen of them milled about, curiously mute, staring through the cracked and grimy glass as if looking for the boy. The giant let out a yell. He unlocked the window and pushed it up, shedding flakes of ancient paint. The bird swirled away from the screaming giant. Then he slammed the window down so hard the glass cracked, leaving it intact but looking like a puzzle made of shards. The giant stamped out of the room, then out of the suite. Gaunt paced about in the other room, his pale face swimming back and forth across the rippled glass of the inner door. Foster sank down on a corner of the mattress and leaned toward the boy, who had learned to trust him enough not to shy away. I'm sorry, he said. I wish I could help you somehow. Do you know what they want with you? What use are you to them? The boy stared at him with eyes unblinking and undefeated. So young, Foster thought. The giant returned less than an hour later, carrying shopping bags. He busied himself in the next room. Foster left the boy and wandered in to watch ominous preparations. The giant had a loaf of cheap white bread. He pinched out lumps of dough and rolled them into balls. The desktop was scattered with flour. The giant dropped a large box back into one of the bags. Not flour, he realized for the box bore a skull and crossbones. "'What's that for?' he asked. "'I have to protect my investment,' the giant said. "'You don't know what trouble I'm in if anything happens to that boy.' "'Yes, but I don't see—' "'No repeats of the other day. I can't allow it.' Filling his pockets with the dough balls, the giant opened the door to the boy's room. The boy looked on with blue eyes unblinking. The giant returned to open the cracked window. It opened easily now. He carefully arranged the balls of dough along the ledge, emptying his pockets. He lowered the window gingerly, and then the blinds. He turned and saw the boy watching him, and brushed his hands together, smiling. Nice birdies, the giant said. By the next morning, the cooing above the casement had ceased. The dough balls were gone. In their place lay a solitary pigeon which must have died in the night and fallen from above. Crumpled and stiff, its glazed eye seemed to stare at Foster through the cracked pane. He stared back at the bird, feeling as if his own eye were equally crazed. Behind him, a thud. An exhalation. The boy had risen, pulled himself from the bed. He limped up beside Foster, dragging his cast. When he saw the bird, the boy collapsed. Foster felt himself crumbling from within, but he found the strength to catch the boy. The boy had learned to cry soundlessly and without tears. Foster carried him back to the mattress, amazed by his self-control. In the other room, the giant had no clue what transpired in here. The rumble of jets masked whatever sounds they might have made. There, there, Foster said, keeping a hand on the boy's back as he shuddered with dry weeping. It's all right. The next day was warmer still. The suite began to grow uncomfortable, even suffocating. Foster asked the giant if they could open a window, although he knew the answer in advance. 
Gaunt and the giant were growing more impatient and nervous. Their mood verged on paranoid. Foster gathered that some crucial deadline had come and gone, that someone they were counting on had failed to appear. There were numerous hushed, harsh phone conversations on their countless cell phones, but they were diligent about keeping him in the dark. Please, he said, pleading the boy's case. Just the one window, just an inch or so, to let some air in. No, nothing. You saw what happened. Just a crack. Gaunt shot up from his chair, kicking it backward. The giant held him back. Foster retreated. Foster's only relief from the interior of the room, from the constant haunting of unanswerable questions in the boy's eyes, was to stand at the window and see what passed outside. But always the bird came to dominate his view. His eye incessantly returned to the increasingly active colony it had attracted. The first flies touched down on the dead eye, then darted toward the rawness of flesh inside the gaping beak, and finally lost all caution and began to explore the carcass thoroughly, inside and out. Sometimes he thought he could smell a faint, putrid odor, only as much as would have drifted through the fractured pane. But the one time he started to unlock the window, to nudge the bird out of his view and dispel the flies, he found that the giant had appeared at his shoulder. If you even touch that lock, I'll break all your fingers. Foster laced his fingers behind his back and watched the flies touch down on the pale gray ruff of feathers and tap across the glass, tasting everything. I want that bird there as a reminder, the giant said. That night, Gaunt and the giant spread an assortment of Chinese takeout containers across the desk and sat on the sofa griping, so weary of their vigil that they had begun to betray bits of it and to discuss it openly, ignoring Foster. Have to do something. They're never coming. We lose the money and the boy, is that what you mean? Said the giant. Throw it all away. The boy's nothing to us except money, and if the money's not coming... You don't waste something like what he has. What does he have? What use is it? That's not a question we have to answer. We just have to find someone who'll make the same deal. You're dreaming. It was hard enough to get this one in place. There's interest, believe me. There's also danger the longer we hold on to him. If he gets desperate or... Or who knows what he'll do. Those birds, they were nothing. What if he pulls down something else? Like what? Like what? How about something heavier than birds? Something to make a crater where we're sitting? That's not his talent. How do you know? You're guessing. No one knows the limits exactly. It's just potential right now. In Belarus, remember, the cluster of debris, space junk, all in a radius around the orphanage. That's ridiculous. But if it's not, if he gets upset enough... He likes the doctor. He won't let anything... The giant paused, looked over at the door to the boy's room, saw Foster standing there watching them. He shook his head and stuffed a forkful of noodles into his mouth. It's stupid to sit here and wait to be picked up. Admit it. The opportunity's gone. Something happened to them, and they'll never... At that moment, one of their many cell phones rang. The giant found it among the scattered takeout containers. Foster watched his glum face shift almost imperceptibly. Yes? Yes. All right. Yes. Then he switched it off and put it back down and simply stared at Gaunt. You're kidding, right? The giant slowly shook his head. In the morning, he said. Foster sank back into the inner room. The boy was asleep, whimpering softly down in the dark. Foster stepped lightly to the window and peered through the blinds as if some new solution might offer itself. No fire escape. Barely enough room on the ledge for the pigeon's fly-blown carcass. 
Even if he dared to unlock it, there was no escape here. If he could, he would have opened the window. He would have raised the boy up. He would have stepped off into space and taken them both away from here. But he could do nothing. Nothing but watch through the night. The street was rarely busy, except for a brief time in the morning, when a flurry of cars passed through on their way to other destinations. The sun came up among TV aerials and satellite dishes and ancient water tanks. The last trace of snow had melted, and the clear sky promised warmth. The flies were already busy, buzzing and bumbling about beyond the glass, nearly as loud as the voices from the other room as the giant and Gaunt roused themselves. Gaunt, in a rare good mood, volunteered to venture out for coffee and rolls. Foster watched him walk away from the front of the building, nine floors below, and head off on foot. The sun began to beat at the glass, but the boy slept on. An ominous rumble from somewhere above the building made him flinch. Then he realized it was only a jet, a tracery of contrails hung in the sky, dissolving. He saw no planes, but he could hear them. It sounded like many of them. With an eye to the sky, Foster traced the web of broken window glass. It was a useless web that couldn't trap a single one of the flies on the far side of the glass. One of the vermin rose up from the fly-blown corpse and lit upon the glass, clung there, separated from his fingertip by the thin pane. The thought of the filthy insect coming near the boy repulsed him, and he tapped the glass to frighten it away. Instead, there was a sharp crack, and a small shard tipped out and fell to the bricks with a sharp sound, shattering into bits of angular glitter. The sound of rumbling grew perceptibly louder, Foster's hearing rendered hypersensitive by fear. It didn't help to realize he'd opened the way for flies now, and that the giant might have heard the sound of breaking glass and would come to investigate, disturbing the sleeping boy. His eye traveled past the ledge, caught by a black car cruising to a stop on the street directly below. Foster turned away and looked at the boy, wondering if he should wake him. To his surprise, he found the boy was awake and smiling at him. Run! Foster whispered. It made him sound ridiculous in his own ears. His only excuse was that he knew the boy could not understand him. The car doors opened, and a small dark figure stepped out, and then another. Men in black suits. From up here, they were not much bigger than the flies that had begun to swarm around the bird in the warming light. The men walked out of sight below the window ledge. He pushed his brow to the glass, but they were hidden. He turned toward the boy, biting his lips, never having felt more helpless in his life. But for some reason, meeting the boy's eyes, he felt suddenly released. It was as if he had done all he could do, and the boy knew it. And although it amounted to nothing, although he had failed completely, still it had been enough. But there must be something more, Foster told himself, even if it meant throwing himself in their path, making some extreme gesture no matter how futile. He put a finger to his lips and gestured toward the other room. The boy nodded. It was the most conspiratorial they had ever been. Foster put his hand briefly on the boy's head, tousled his hair, then stepped into the other room. He made a great show of easing the door shut. No need for that, the giant said. He'll have to wake up soon enough. This is his last day with us. Foster pretended surprise. Really? Well, that's a relief. It's bound to be better for him wherever he's going. The giant looked at Foster as if he were impossibly naive. If you say so. Foster glanced back at the door. He had thought the murmuring came from out here, but now he realized it must be coming from another floor completely. It was hard to remember they were not alone in the old office building. Hard to remember, at times, that they were not alone in the whole world. 
Out in the hall, he heard the elevator creaking. The giant looked perplexed. He rose to his feet and started toward the boy's room. But Foster stepped deftly toward the hall, and the giant had to veer to intercept him. Where do you think you're going? I thought I heard someone at the door. The giant moved between Foster and the hall door. He opened it and looked out. The approaching elevator sounded clear and clangorous. The giant straddled the threshold, as if suspecting that Foster was looking for a chance to slam the door and lock him out. The elevator stopped. The doors took their time, squealing open. Foster peered out past the giant as two men he had never seen stepped out of the lift and looked around in the dimness. The giant beckoned them over and stepped back into the suite, forcing Foster in first. Someone was talking urgently now in some room nearby. He could almost make out the voices. Foster wondered if the sound was making the men apprehensive. They did not look like men who were ordinarily nervous about anything, but perhaps they knew a little about the boy, enough to fear him. It occurred to Foster that he had never feared the boy, only feared for him. Where is he? said one of the new men. The giant said, I'll get him. No, Foster said. The strangers turned to glare at him. One said, Who is this? Nobody, said the giant. I'm the boy's doctor, Foster said. He's sleeping. He hasn't been well. He had a blow to the head, and he, he needs rest. He needs special care. Anger. Is he serious? The giant shrugged. He's grown attached. They stared at Foster as if this were unfortunate and unnecessary. Foster had been about to plead his own case, to ask if they would let him come along to care for the boy. But he could see now the futility of such a request. He didn't mind making a fool of himself, but there was little point in wasting his energy. There must be something else he could do. The murmuring, though still indistinct, had grown louder. Foster realized where the sound was coming from an instant before the others did. He saw the giant's eyes widen as he turned his massive head toward the inner door. The frosted glass was dark, darker than the room had ever been in daylight, even with the blinds shut. The giant cast a malevolent look at Foster, as if he were behind this somehow. Then he took a step toward the door. The two strangers looked on without a clue what they were witnessing. At that moment, Foster heard banging in the hall, and the outer door flew open. The strangers whirled with guns drawn out of nowhere as Gaunt hurled himself into the room, gasping and out of breath from rushing up the stairs. Stop him, he croaked, not even seeing the guns. He lunged at the boy's door. The giant beat him to it. Foster staggered back toward the hall. The giant hurled himself against the door, but although it could not be locked from within, it seemed to resist his heavy blows. Gaunt fell in beside him, and the two men threw themselves at the door until the very frame began to crack. The frosted glass pane shattered, and the door crashed open in the same instant, unbottling the darkness sealed within. The room beyond was utterly black and thick and crawling and alive. It was filled with a million seething voices. The giant and Gaunt and the two strangers with their useless guns all fell back from the demonic cloud with their mouths slowly moving, as if they were trying to mimic or interpret the sounds. But they were not words, not really. They were meaningless, incoherent yet full of expression. Get in there, screamed Gaunt. You get in, the giant cried. Then Foster did a senseless thing. He turned on the strangers, about whom he knew nothing, except that they were likely to be ruthless. And without a second thought, he snatched the gun from the hands of the nearest. The man let out a shout, and they all turned to look at Foster. Three guns pointed at him. They stared at him as if he were crazy, suicidal. Foster turned toward the inner doorway. He could see the faintest glow from the far window. 
He fired into the mass, but it was like shooting into smoke. He was thrown backward, his shoulder wrenched by recoil, deafened by the gunshot, the weapon falling from his hand. Even through the shock of sound, he could hear a glass shatter, and it was the sound of release. From out of the horrible buzzing came a peal of high, pure laughter. The smoke that wasn't smoke had already cleared by the time he regained his feet. It had thinned so much he could see the walls again, and the blinds hanging limp and tattered, the window completely shattered from its frame, and the open sky beyond. Foster ignored the fallen gun, ignored the gun still aimed at him, and walked alone toward the window. He stared out into the morning. Above the roof lines, still rising, still laughing, he caught sight of a dark, coherent cloud that surged and gathered and regathered itself and persisted. Foster looked down at his hands, which rested on the ledge among strewn shards of glass. A fly spiraled down and landed on his knuckle. It took several steps, rubbed its forelegs together as if giving thanks, then kissed his skin quite tenderly. Foster raised his hand, meaning to lift it up until he could meet its eyes, wondering what he might find there. But the fly was only a fly, after all, and too restless for such formalities. Casting itself onto the wind, it hurried to rejoin its legion. Foster turned to face the other men, ready to accept their blame, whatever came. Because of me, he thought, and was content. Two sites you need to go over there and check out as well, Mark Laidlaw and... June Steve podcast, a fantastic podcast. Look out for more stories by Mark Laidlaw and more narrations by June Steve on Starship Sofa. So ending on new titles today, and it's going to be a little bit different new titles today. It is all by one publisher, Glance, and it's actually the collection they've got out, and it's just come out April the 16th, 2009, and each one is seven ninety nine paperback. It's the Space Opera collection, and... You know what I'm like with clicking my masterworks and, and then I was starting to collect the actual yellow paperback ones, the glance ones as well. They brought out these ones and a lot of them are in, some of them are actually in, you know, the other collections as well. But like I said, this came through my post anyway. I was like a kid in a sweetie shop when they all came through. But it is, you know, there's some cracking stories there. So I just want to go through some of them, you know, and describe them, the pictures on the front and give a little kind of reading to them. First one up, what? Well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll go through them all and just list them all so you kind of know what's what's coming. Century Rain, Alistair Reynolds, that one's in there. Adam Roberts, the one called Stone. You've got Paul Anderson's Tau Zero. Greg Bear's Eon. You've got Ringworld, Larry Niven, Arthur C. Clarke, Rendezvous with Rama. You've got M. John Harrison, The Century Device, Olaf Stapledon, Last and First Men, Eternal Light by Paul McCauley, and Ilium by Dan Simmons. And like I say, there's a few there straight away that's been picked for the Masterworks collection that I know of. You know, I mean, the Masterworks collection goes up to oodly oodly numbers. I think, God knows how many. You know, but certainly a lot more than the 10 here. And I think it's a, it's a nice, it's a good, bold move by Glance. Straight away, it's, it's got the collection bug grabbing me as well when I look at them. You know, when I see them, I'm always keen on them kind of things. But they've picked some like great, you know, the, the Alistair Reynolds Century Rain there, the Ringworld, Larry Niven. Do you know? But like I said, there is a couple that's been, or a few that's been hit on the other kind of series. And I'm wondering why they've done that. You know, obviously it's space opera and they're picking kind of their best 10 space opera ones. You know, Century Rain, I just, like I say, they're all black and white, very mono distinguished. Pictures, nothing to really do with kind of science fiction. Do you know if that's 
or you know, like space opera, anything like that. Century Rain, I was just looking at Alistair Reynolds one there, the front cover. It's a bit like kind of shattered glass, time tunnel fragmented, black and white shattered glass. Adam Roberts is the stone one, and that's just really kind of, think of it as paper shredding, but you know like the way it's been cut dead fine and everything like that. It's just, that's basically all that one is. Tau Zero by the Paul Anderson's paper aeroplane, just, <laughs> you know. So some of them are kind of quite weird. Greg Bear's Eon is a bit of a kind of distorted circle. Oh, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like a filter. We use filter paper at work to filter out all the kind of water and filter out all the hard solids and everything like that. And it just looks like a chemistry lab filter paper. So I don't know if that's what it actually is or a cone or something like that. Ringworld, Larry Niven. What would you guess? <laughs> ring will Larry Niven what kind of thing would you guess well no it's not that it's not a ring it's a, some sort of pointed star paper pointed star rendezvous with Rama is a bit of a, like, you know, a cone shaped again looking at similar to like a coffee cup kind of in, in style and size century device is like a sheet of paper which actually looks really good and it's the paper has been kind of blown out from like a hole as if like a shotgun has been blown through it but it's coming towards you, if you know what I mean, not the other way around, as if the, the shot's been taken from behind the paper. So that's actually a nice one, that one. Last and First Men, Olaf Stapledon is, that's, you know, that's a, quite a good one. It's just like loads of little cut-out men and women, um, just kind of human figure shapes. Eternal Light, Paul McCauley, is just paper cuttings, paper, you know when you punch paper holes? That's what I was looking for. Thousands and thousands of them. Ilium is a bit like a black and white sundial. So it's a bold move, my kind of reckoning. It's a bold move. The so, and it might be that one reason, you know, the so distinguishable, you know, these black and white ones, you know, and striking covers in the way that they're just getting as far removed of the science fiction imagery, you know, of the kind of the masterworks, you know, them covers are total science fiction, fantasy, boy wonder, girl wonder, imaginations these ones are just very you know like the adult covers of harry potter and everything like that so that's the kind of the style of the motion um when i first seen them when i first seen them kind of hitting about on the web i was a little bit suspect but and uh, this is wrong really of me i mean i'm looking at it now from the collection do you know what i mean i've got like <laughs> the collections here on my desk and the nice, do you know what I mean? And they're all kind of brand new. They haven't been kind of read. I don't think I'd actually read. I don't want to read them, spoil them. But you know, like I say, so I'm kind of looking at other kind of a, a gooey-eyed perspective. I've got them all, and they're all really nice. It is a nice collection. Don't get me wrong. Like I say, there's some cracking stories in there. I'll just read release that I got for this space opera. Following the success of its revigoration of some of its most important genre works of the last century, including classic tales of terror and fantasy, Glance presents a stylish repackage for some of the key works of modern space opera. These novels have it all, galaxy-spanning plotlines, incredibly rich and colourful characters, and pure storytelling. The whole list, star-studded with award-winning novels and authors, comes rejacketed with a cool new look. Ensuring these cutting-edge tales remain one of the most taught-about space operas of recent time. Eternal Light, Paul Macaulay. Long out of print, this unique British sci-fi novel comes from the pen of a multi-award-winning writer and a true embodiment of ideas-driven sci-fi. 
Remember, we just played a Paul McCauley little lost robot. Century Rain, Alistair Reynolds, one of the world's foremost authors of epic space opera. Century Rain is a dark, brooding noir novel set in the universe of Revelation Space and combined Alistair Reynolds as a master singer of the space opera. That was the time said that. Eon, Greg Bear, hanging above the earth, a strange stone as vast as the imagination and honeycombed with mysterious chambers, has a huge ramifications for the entire human race in this classic 1980s space opera from a critically acclaimed award-winning author. Iliam Dan Simmons. Taking the classic tale of Iliad at the starting point, Simmons crafts a compelling blend of ancient Greek mythology, time travel, space opera in this, one of his most important novels. Rendezvous with Rama, Arthur C. Clarke, perhaps the most important SF writer of his generation. Arthur C. Clarke remains one of the most influential and popular writers of science fiction. He has penned some of the most acclaimed and enduring science fiction novels ever written, and this, a tale of mankind's contact with an alien spaceship, is among his finest. Last and First Men, Olaf Stapledon. Among science fiction writers, Olaf Stapledon stands alone for the sheer scope and ambition of his work. First published in 1930, Last and First Men is full of pioneering speculations about evolution, terraforming, genetic engineering and many other subjects. Ringworld, Larry Niven. A motley band of explorers sets out to investigate an immense artificial land some 180 million miles across circling a sun. When their ship crash lands, they face a perilous trek across the ring world surface in this classic future history. Stone, Adam Roberts. Sprung from prison in the centre of a star, the universe's last criminal is employed to kill the population of a planet. It is a crime that will tear apart interstellar utopia in this novel from one of the brightest stars of British science fiction and the king of high-concept SF. Tau Zero, Paul Anderson. The epic voyage of the spacecraft Leona Christine will take her and her 50-strong crew to a planet some 30 light-years distance. But because the ship will accelerate to the close to the speed of light, for those on board, subjective time will slow and the journey will only be a few years' duration. But an accident changes everything and the crew are plunged headlong into the unknown. Last one, Century Device, M. John Harrison. John Truck has outward appearances, just another low-life spaceship captain. But he was also the last of the Centurions, or at least half of him was, which meant that he was the only person who could operate the Century Device a sentient bomb which might hold the key to settling a vicious space war. Harrison turns the conventions of space opera on its head with his razor-sharp SF novel. There you go. Space opera, the collection. Seven ninety nine published. They're out now. Paperback, April the 16th, so they're out. Some great books there, do you know what I mean? Like, say, you know, I guess, would I pick a favourite one? I have, certainly haven't read them all, but the I would probably... You know, Larry Niven's Ring World, and it's kind of get over the cover, though. Do you know what I mean? Why, why have this like little? Am I missing something there? Someone tell us. Ring World, they have this pointy paper star. Maybe that's it. Do you know? Anyway, there you go. Ten classics, four new titles. So what now? Well, why don't you go over and listen to the Sofa Notes new show? One show in the can, next show is getting recorded in two days' time. It has turned out to be a very popular show, I'm really quite pleased with it. So do pop over there, we've got some great guests, and like I say, this week we'll probably be talking about, you know, J.J. Ballard, and whatever else makes the news, you know, the, the nebulas are just about to be announced there. So do pop over, sofanauts.com, or just come from Starship Sova, go in iTunes, check it out, and subscribe. 
call it This Week in Sci-Fi. So special news for the Sanatorium show. If you donate any amount to the Starship Sova Coffers, you will be signed up to the Sanatorium show. Please, by all means, that's all you have to do. Drop a donation to Starship Sova. Come onto the website. If you drop a donation, I will send you the details of how you can get the free Sanatorium shows for life. So starting from today, the 22nd, Wednesday, the 22nd of April, I'm going to take it right through to, let's see, oh, let's see, the 6th of May. That is your window period. Donate in that month or in them few weeks. And that's it. You will be signed up for the sanatorium show. Once that goes, that special offer is off. As great salesmen say, up and down the country every day. <laughs> Once in a lifetime offer. <laughs> well, there you go. It's up there. Please, you know, do consider donating. Any amount gets you the shows. If you want to join me over at the Sofa North, I'm more than happy to see you there. Until next week, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa of that liberation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.